We are in this series, Christian Atheist, where we've been looking into the fruit of the Spirit so that we can produce the fruit of the Spirit. And as we've kind of mentioned each week, a Christian Atheist is someone who believes in God but lives like he doesn't exist, which also means that the Christian Atheist is someone who goes to church, they claim to be a follower of Christ, they claim to be Christian or hold Christian values, but they don't produce or have evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And today we're talking about the peace of God that comes with the fruit of the Spirit. So Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 5, it says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to learn more about how we can produce peace in our lives. Lord, I just pray that you speak through me as you always do and as you always know how. Lord, open up our hearts to receive this message that you have for us today. I just want to take this moment and step out of the spotlight and have you step into the spotlight, Lord. Lord, this is your message, and I'm just your messenger. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our culture is obsessed with hurry, obsessed with busyness. It's obsessed with the idea of working long and hard hours to get the things and the life that we desire. Our culture is obsessed with filling our schedules and being frequently busy. And it's gotten to the point to where, I don't know about you, maybe you're different than I am, but when I get to take a break, I feel guilty about taking a break. I I feel guilty that I'm not working on something. Like yesterday, uh, Chloe and I, we we took a little bit of a break uh, just because it was uh, potentially our last Saturday without a child. And uh, we're like, okay, so we're going to enjoy this time where we're going to take naps throughout the day. And we did, but the whole time I'm like, oh, I need to be working on something. There's this that needs to be done. There's this that needs to be done. Uh, I need to work on this. Maybe I should just go up to the church and get a few things done. Like it's not going to hurt anything. And the whole time that's been flooding my mind. And, and it's because we're, we, we become so bought in to what our culture is telling us is that you have to be busy. You have to be doing something. So when we do get a little break, it's always too short. It never completely recharges us. Like we might get a little bit of rest, but if you've ever gone on vacation and then came back and had to go to work the next day and you're like, oh, I have to go back already? Like why can't I just stay at the beach forever? And it's because we don't give ourselves peace. We're, we're not at peace but it's because of this culture that we live in we we go right back into our busy schedules and honest to goodness people look down on other people when they don't work long and hard hours they do right you've probably seen that or even experienced that Uh, there's a a pastor friend that i know and he's gotten he, he worked like 60 hours a week 60 70 hours a week every single week for the first a few years of his church's life because he planted a church. But now he only works like 30. 
And when he tells people that, there's always pastors that are like, you only work 30 hours a week? What's wrong with you? And he said it's, it's because that they're so bought into, I have to work so much. And, and it's true, right? I've even heard that people say this to my face. I'll rest when I die, right? I'll continue to work until the day that I die, which gives a whole new meaning to rest in peace. Because when you rest in peace, like for them, that's literally death. And that's the only time that they're going to be able to rest in peace. But that's not true. You can rest in peace and not die. You can rest in peace while you're still alive. But we're so obsessed with hurry. We're so obsessed with busyness. And it's affected our lives and it's affected our families. And the problem is that we did it to ourselves. We've done this to ourselves. The reason that you don't feel peace in your life is because of you. It's because you've bought into this. In this book that I'm reading, the author concluded that there's three main inventions that shaped our Western culture for today. And and these were the three, the clock, the light bulb, and the iPhone. So starting with the clock, he he said, and I'm summarizing uh, what he said in the book, but in, in 1370, the first public clock was put up in Germany, in our world. And it would cause this radical shift from natural time that governed our lives, sunrise to sunset, to an artificial time that we could use as a resource to fill our personal agendas. So when this clock was put up before then, it wasn't that people didn't know how to to tell time. It was just simply whenever the sun rose, you did things for as long as it took you. And then when, when the sun set, you were done for the day. But you would work as efficiently as you could, and it wasn't a resource because you didn't know that you only had an hour for this. You just did it until it got done. And there's a a thing in psychology, they'll say that if you give yourself two hours to work on something that only takes 30 minutes, you'll take two hours to do that thing. Whereas if you don't have a time constraint on you and you just get it done as fast as you can, you could probably get it done in 30 minutes. But because we allow ourselves two hours, we will fill up those entire two hours. And this is the shift that happened in 1370 when time became artificial. Now, fast forward a few centuries, and in 19 or 1879, not 19, 1879, the light bulb was invented, giving us the opportunity to have daylight inside of our homes at night. And the whole idea was that it would increase productivity. We could stay up longer hours and get more done. We were no longer governed by sunrise and sunset. We could work well into the night. We could work all night. And we could even get up early in the morning if you're a a morning person. And as a result to the light bulb, the time spent sleeping plummeted. Before the light bulb was invented, the average American slept 10 hours a night. Today, the average American sleeps 6.8 hours a night. And for some of you, you're like, you guys are getting seven hours of sleep? I haven't gotten seven hours of sleep in a long time. Like some of you are probably thinking that. And some of you are like, you're only getting seven hours a night of sleep? That would be my sister. Um, Sorry. Anyways, if you know my sister, you know her. Then with the inventions of the microwave, with the laundry machine, with other 
that we would consider other things that we consider modern day conveniences that we take advantage of now and don't think much about. When those were invented, the whole idea was that it would save us time. And in, 19, in, in 1967, there was a Senate subcommittee that predicted by 1985, the average American would work 22 hours a week and 27 weeks a year because of all the free time that this new technology would save us. Now, they were completely wrong on how we would use that leisure time. And sociologists, like they were predicting, when they were predicting what it would look like in the 2000s, they were saying there would be a dramatic increase in leisure time, even from uh, 1985 to today. They're like, there's going to be this dramatic increase in uh, leisure time for Americans. And though they were right, that technology has saved us time, right? Because if you think about it, before the laundry machine was made, you had to wash clothes by hand. And you had to wait for them to dry. But then after the laundry machine and the dryer machine, they were made, then it saved you time because while something else, a machine, was washing your clothes, you could go and do other things. What they didn't realize back then is how we would use that leisure time. Is that instead of taking a moment to rest when we put our clothes in the washing machine, we filled up our schedules with other things. And then that leads to the iPhone. When the iPhone was introduced in June of 2007, which, by the way, this made me feel really old. I know I'm not old, but like it made me feel old because I, I help coach soccer at the, at the high school for girls. And there are some girls on my team who were born after June 2007. And they're in high school now. So if you remember when the iPhone came out, those people are in high school right now. And it just blew my mind. I was like, oh, <laughs> that makes me feel old. I know I'm not, but it makes me feel that way. Anyways, uh, when the iPhone was, it was introduced, it started tracking uh, during one of the updates how much time you spent on your phones. And in 2016, the average person who had an iPhone spent two and a half hours a day on their phone. Not, not including any other type of screen time, leisure, just sitting there on their phone. Three years later in 2019, that statistic jumped to over five hours a day on average. An article I found on the CDC website, it said this, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, kids aged eight to 18 now spend on average 7.5 hours in front of a screen for entertainment each day. 4.5 of which are spent watching TV. Over a year, that adds up to 114 full days watching a screen for fun. That's just the time they spend in front of a screen for entertainment, and it doesn't include the time they spend on a computer at school for educational purpose or at home for homework. In response to this, I found this other uh, really good quote. A guy by the name of uh, Michael Zigrelli did a five-year study on 20,000 Christians in the U.S. And he concluded that busyness was the number one distraction from life with God. In his research, he concluded this, and this is the direct quote. It may be the case that, one, Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to, two, 
God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to four, Christians become more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and the cycle begins again. I've said it before, and it's because I love this quote so much, it has stuck with me for years, but I heard a preacher say one time, if the devil can't get you to sin, he'll make you busy. Because when you're busy, you're distracted from what really matters, which is your relationship with God. Now, I know that I just went through like a lot of statistics and quotes and stuff, but I wanted to paint this picture for you of our culture today. We're obsessed with busy. We're obsessed with things that don't lead us to peace. We've bought into this idea that if you're busy now, then you'll be able to rest later. But the reality is, is that even after you retire, you still don't get a whole lot of rest. There's still always things. There's still grandkids and great-grandkids to deal with. And many people, they're living their lives here without ever tasting what godly peace really tastes like because they don't know how to produce it in their life. The busyness, the hurry, and the overload in our cult- that our culture celebrates robs you of your peace which is why it's so popular today. Because the enemy does not want you to have peace. He wants you to be busy. He wants you to buy into all the worldly values and ideals. And that's why some of your vacations don't feel like vacations, they feel like trips. That's why some of you can never seem to really catch a break in your life. That's why some of you aren't sleeping well at night. That's why some of you are anxious and worried most of the time while your life is in a constant state of chaos. Now hopefully up to this point you see that there's an importance to pursuing peace in your life and pursuing God to find that peace. And I'm not talking about the manufactured peace because you can manufacture some level of peace but it's not going to last. It will only last for a moment. Just like happiness only lasts for a moment, this manufactured peace that this world will offer you only lasts for a moment. No, I'm talking about the peace of God that only comes from God. It's the peace that passes all understanding. It's the peace that gives you permission to sleep in a boat on the lower deck in the middle of a storm. It's the peace that, that allows you to have freedom to sing praises to God when you're sitting in a jail cell. It's the peace of God, and it's not as far as you might think it is. You know, the Bible actually gives a step-by-step guide on how to get this peace. It it does. Like most things, you kind of have to look throughout Scripture and and gather different stories about how other people found like joy or or love, and and there's not really like a step-by-step guide. Right, if there, if there is a step-by-step guide on what you're supposed to do in your life, like the Bible's one of it, but there's pretty gray areas in there. There's some vagueness to the Bible because we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to interpret it. But in this instance, Paul gives us five steps. And it comes from Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 4 through 7 again. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
So here's the five steps towards peace. Rejoice in the Lord. Do not be anxious. Prayer and petition. Thanksgiving. And presenting your request to God. So if you follow those steps, you'll find and produce peace in your life. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. When you feel chaos, rejoice in the Lord, for he is good. His mercy and love endures forever. If you feel anxious, just give it to God, right? What is it? 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety on him. Just give it to God. Don't be anxious anymore. Pray about it. Give thanks to God as you present your request to God. And when you do those things, verse 7 says, the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And honestly, like I could end the sermon there and it would probably feel like a lot of sermons on peace. Leaving knowing what you're supposed to be doing, leaving knowing what you're supposed to feel and then walking out the door and it's like, okay, well, there's the five steps. Now let's go practice it. You get verse one or uh, the first step, rejoice in the Lord. Okay, Lord, I'm rejoicing you all day long. Something bad happens. Lord, I'm not sure if I really want to rejoice you, but I know that the that the preacher said I had to. Lord, I'm thankful that my life is a mess right now. And then you get, okay, what was step two? Do not be anxious. Well, I'm really anxious right now because of what's happening. So, so God, I'm just gonna, you know, First Peter 5, 7, I'm gonna cast all my anxiety on you. If you're willing to be honest with me, how often does that actually work? You know how many times that I've been anxious in my life and I've said, God, just take my anxiousness away and I left feeling more anxious? I left feeling more scared? I left feeling more like a failure than what I already did? I think there's a reason for that. And it's because when we look at Paul and what he's saying and he says it, or we see it in First Peter 2, sometimes when we read scripture, we think of it like a textbook. And there are certainly parts where it is like a textbook where it's talking about the history. But we think of it as like, this is the step-by-step God of how I'm supposed to live my life. So whenever Paul says, do not be anxious and we're anxious, we feel like we're not supposed to be anxious. And because we feel like we're not supposed to be anxious and we, we try to give it to God, but we still feel it. And then we feel guilty because we're still anxious about a situation that we thought we already gave to God. And because we feel guilty, it makes us more anxious of maybe, maybe my faith's not as strong as I thought I was. Like maybe, maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. Maybe my relationship with God is strained and I thought it was doing pretty good. I thought I was doing everything that I was supposed to. And we, we begin to fill up with a different type of anxiety. Yes, your anxious, anxiousness for a situation might waver and it might fade away, but your anxiousness is now shifted towards your relationship with God. Maybe I'm, I'm not as close to God as I thought I was. And I'm not saying that that's not necessarily not true, but the reality is that our anxiousness shifts from whatever was causing us anxiety to our relationship with God, which strains our relationship with God, and honest to goodness leaves us trusting him less. Because eventually when this cycle happens, you'll come to a moment where you'll be like, I'm just gonna keep my anxiety. Because if I can keep the anxiousness in this situation, then my relationship with God won't be strained anymore. 
and, and if it's not strained with him, I'll just, I'll deal with it. Uh, I'll, I'll hold on to it. And, and I'll just let God know that everything's okay. That I'm fine. Uh, I'll let God know that, that I've got this handled. And I know he's there. And I know he's going to take care of it. But deep down inside, I don't feel that at all. Paul isn't actually trying to tell us that. Because at first glance, you kind of look at it and you're like, okay, if I was in a room with Paul, which would be awesome, by the way, if I was in a room with Paul and I told him, Paul, you know, I'm just kind of anxious about what's happening at at the church. I'm kind of anxious about what's happening in my family's life. And if Paul, if you're just looking at this passage, he would say, well, just don't be anxious. Thanks. Like, that's, that's genius, Paul. I'm so glad that you told me not to be anxious about it. But Paul actually surrounds this with God's presence. If you look back to what he says after he says rejoice in the Lord, he says the Lord is near. The Lord is near. And I believe that's where we're called to start. Knowing that the Lord is near. Knowing that he's right there beside us. Start with the Lord being near to you. Now on your journey to find peace. Thomas Merton said, once said, we are not with at peace with others because we are not at peace with ourselves. And we are not at peace with ourselves because we are not at peace with God. I believe one of the main reasons that we aren't at peace as a society and you as an individual is because you're not at peace with God. Like we can give you all of the symptoms and all the things to get you at, uh, how to get at, be at peace with others who frustrate you. Right? There's, there's a sermon title for the future. How to, how to be at peace with people who get on your nerves. And then there's how to be at peace with yourself when you feel like you're a failure. Sermon number two. But this sermon's all about how to be at peace with God. Because if you're at peace with God, then you'll understand who God sees you and not how you see you, but how God sees you and you'll be at peace with yourself. And then if you're at peace with God and you're at peace with yourself, then you'll be at peace with others naturally simply because you know who God created you to be. So whatever they say to you, you know that it's not true because God's told you who you are. And you'll see them who they were created to be, that they are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. And though Satan may be working in and through them to get on your last nerve, they're still a child of God. They're still his creation. If they're not a child of God yet, they're still his creation. And God still loves them. Just as he loved you. I believe one of the main reasons that we're not at peace with God is because we're too much in a hurry. We're too busy to just sit with him. Psalm chapter 46 ends with this proclamation of peace. Talks about breaking uh, arrows, breaking spears, uh, or ending wars. It, it ends with this proclamation of the peace that God brings. And, and out of their praise of peace, verse 10 comes and says the all-famous line, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. I wonder what would happen if you started to say no to some of the things that you always say yes to and instead you be still and know that he's God. 
What, what if you said no scrolling on social media because you're bored or you don't know what else you're supposed to do and, and, and you said yes to being still and knowing that he is God? What if you said no to watching the news at night and to just be still and know that he is God? What if you said no to snoozing your alarm in the morning and took a moment before your day to be still and know that he is God? How different would your life be? I'm, I'm just going to tell you because I have experience, but I also know because of God's word, it would radically change over time. It's not going to change in an instant. It's going to change over time. But you have to be still. The problem is that if you're anything like I was this past week, I don't know how to be still. Like, I, I pace when I talk on the phone. I pace up here. Like, I, I'm always having to move and do something. I don't know how to be still. We read verses like 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And we try to cast it, but we get more anxious. You know why we get anxious when we start casting our anxiety on God? Because in order to actually cast your anxiety, you have to relive what brought you anxiety in the first place. And not a lot of people like to walk through their anxiousness because in our culture, we've been told to push it down, especially in church culture. We've said, you know, just push it down. If you feel anxious, then someone's going to tell you that you shouldn't be anxious. If you come in, you're worried about what your life is going to look like this week. And on Sunday, you come in and you tell someone that you're worried. They're going to say, well, don't be worried because God's with you. Well, God doesn't feel like he's with me right now, right? We often mistake silence for absence, but we also have to walk through why we feel like he's absent when he's just silent. And what makes us so anxious inside when we're casting it on him is that as we're reliving, we start to feel anxious inside. And it's because he's taking it away from us, but we feel like he's just bringing it all back up. So our natural response has been in church and it's flooded into our relationship with God is that when I feel anxious and I'm praying, then I'm just going to stop praying because that pushes it back down and gives me that relief. So then when we're talking to people in church, when we're talking to other people, it's always I'm good, I'm fine, I'm blessed, everything's going great, God is good, it's all great. And if someone says, well, well what's really happening in your life? Well, you know, I've got these things and these things and I've got this going on and and I had this bad situation come up and and all of these things are happening, but God is good. But I'm going to praise God anyways. And then when we go to God in prayer and we're sitting there in this moment, we're like, I've got all of these things just piling up on my life, but I know you're going to take care of it, but deep down we don't feel it. And what happens is that we start praying for who we think we should be instead of who we are today. We, we pray uh, looking towards, you know, my, my future self, they won't be anxious about this. My future self, if this situation comes back up, they won't be worried. So I'm going to pray for God to make me my future self instead of dealing with who I am today. And our natural response is that we just don't pray. 
And I can tell you, it doesn't work that well. Because here's something else that's also deep inside your mind. You will never live up to who you want to be or who you feel like you should be. C.S. Lewis wrote this. We must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. It's not about what, what we want to be. We shouldn't be praying for who we want to be. It's who we are right now. God knows who you should be. Trust me, he knows who you should be, but he loves you for who you are today. God doesn't love you because he sees the future self and he's like, man, Logan's going to be great in the future. Right now, he's not that great, but he's going to be great in the future and I love him because of how great he's going to be. No, he says, I love you because of who you are today. In your broken mess, in your hurt, in your pain, God loves you for the broken mess that you are today. And he wants you to tell him the mess of today. Not the mess of tomorrow or not how you're going to deal with the mess of today. Not what you're going to look like at the end of the mess of today. He wants you to tell him about the mess of today. He wants to hear your brokenness. He wants to hear what's truly in your mind. And I'm telling you, because I grew up in a pastor's home and I'm a church person, I, I know the whole church talk. And I know the whole church prayers. Of, of you have to come before God with this reverence and respect and don't you dare say that God's wrong. Don't you dare get mad at God. Don't, don't you dare uh, look at God and say, God, I'm worried because you know from scripture you're not supposed to be worried. You're not supposed to be anxious. So come to God and, and, and let him know that you know that he's in control. But God doesn't want those canned prayers. He doesn't want those... Uh, ungenuine prayers. And when we cover up our true feelings in prayer, because we know that we shouldn't be anxious, we know that we shouldn't be worried, we know that we shouldn't be mad or we shouldn't complain because others have it worse off, when we do that to ourselves, we're not finding peace. But God doesn't actually mind our complaints. If you want proof of that, just read Psalms. Psalms is the most honest book of them all. And I, I love the Psalms because of how they're structured and the poetry behind it. And I love how the King James wrote out all of, or the King James Version wrote out all of the Psalms. They're, they're just so, uh, they're, they're so great. And like in times of stress and need, you can come to them and, and it makes you feel at peace. You know why it does that? Because when King David is writing it, he's honest. It's not because he was a poet. It's not because he knew how to put words together. He was honest in his prayers. Right? Let me, let me show you some examples. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you know it. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake right? Really peaceful, which is why we, we often use that one during uh, funerals because it's peaceful. It, it's a nice sentiment. It makes us feel at peace. But in that prayer, not that same prayer, but in another prayer from David, Psalm 40 verse 10 says, may burning coals fall on them. May they be thrown into the fire, into the merry pits and never rise again. Now, 
it doesn't sound like David's always as calm and peaceful as he is in Psalm 23, as he is in Psalm 40. Here's another example. These are really close to each other. Psalm 145, verse 2. Every day I praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Psalm 142, verse 2. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell him my trouble. Right? May have been praising him today, but it sounds a whole lot that when he wrote Psalm 142, he was ready to complain. Right? There's so many examples of that that you can find in there because he's just simply honest. You're, you're taking a look. God's given us an opportunity to take a look into David's emotions and feelings, his heartfelt and honest prayers. Like there are times when he's praying that he's mad at God and he tells God, I'm mad at you. I don't like you right now. Like I love you because I have to, but I don't want to. And then there's other times that he's like, everything's great and God is so great and he's so amazing. And then like the very next Psalm will be, but the enemies are getting on my nerves and I want you to destroy them all. I don't care who they are, just kill them all. And He's just honest. And I wonder if that's the reason why we don't pray as we know that we should because we know that we're not being honest with God. We know that, that what's in us is not what we're actually praying for. It's not what we're actually releasing to God. We're, we're saying, we're, we're trying to release of who God's going to make us into. Some of the reason why I believe God called David a man after his own heart is because David was honest with God and he was honest with himself. He knew what his weaknesses were because he constantly asked God to search him and know him. So he was honest with himself, but he was also honest with God as saying, if you really do love me, then you're going you're gonna to put up with all my complaints. You're going to put up with all my feelings because I know that you love me and that's why I'm willing to be honest with you. David came to God, wounds, scars and all, looking for a healer. And oftentimes when we go to prayers, we go to God knowing that he's the healer but not seeking any healing. Knowing that he is gonna take care of us but trying to take care of ourselves. David wasn't like that. He was like, here's my scars, here's my wounds. I know that you can heal me. I don't know how you're gonna heal me and I'm kind of frustrated that you haven't already healed me yet but I'm going to trust you anyways. But David had something that a lot of us don't have. He took the time to be still and know him as God. He took the time to be still. The only reason that we have the Psalms today is because David kept a prayer journal. He took that time to journal out his prayers and to say, Lord, this is my prayer for today. Or this is my several prayers for today. He took the time to be still and know that he is God. Sometimes deep down, we know that we will never be able to live up to who we should be. But I want to tell you, it's okay. That's why God sent his only son, Jesus to be who you should be. So you don't have to pray for who you feel like you're supposed to be because Christ already has it covered. When, when Jesus came to live, he lived the life that we possibly can't live because we're stained by our sins. But he was 
perfect, he was unbroken, he was unstained, and he died in your place. And when you eliminate the hurry in your life and you be still and know that he is God, you'll understand that Jesus took on your brokenness. Jesus took on your shame. He took on your imperfections. He took on your sins. And he died the death that we all deserved, that you deserved. And when he died, something amazing happened with our unrestfulness, with our uh, unpeace. I know that's not a word, but I'm going to make it a word. Unpeace is it died with him. When you become a child of God, his death represents the death of everything that is not the fruit of the Spirit. All of that busyness, all of that hurry died with him. The problem is that we're trying to dig in the grave to find it back, to, to bring it back. We're trying to put our new wine into the old wineskins. But when Jesus raised back into life, he raised you into a new life, a life without sin, a life without uh, anything else, but a life full of peace and love and joy and all of the fruit of the Spirit. Because you were still and deepened your understanding of who God is and what he's done for you. And if you truly want to find peace in your life, just know that you'll never be able to manufacture it. You can't just go through the five steps without actually deeply going through the five steps. You can't find peace. Peace finds you. So as we sing this last song, I want to invite you to just take the next moment as we're crying out to God, Lord, I need you to just be still and know that he is God. I can tell you from experience, silence can be the loudest thing in your life. But until you embrace that silence of the anxiousness, of the worry, of the fear, of everything else, you will never find true peace. So give him all of your worries. Give him all of your fears. Be completely honest with him. He can take it. Give him your greatest mess. and Watch him turn it into your, his greatest message.